Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Megan Lee. Short stories have provided a great starting point for many writers, as they can provide a sense of achievement and closure, being only about 7,000 words long. But being short doesn't mean that short stories aren't an effective way of telling a complex tale. Sometimes a short story can have a greater impact on a reader than a whole novel. So joining us tonight to talk about short stories is Maria Regan. Hello, Marie. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your work, please? Uh, I write and edit horror. Predominantly at the moment, edit, I would imagine. The last few have been uh, Phantoms, which is Ghost Stories, um, Exit Wounds, which I co-edited with my husband, Paul Kane. Uh, that was Crime. And just recently, Wonderland, again with Paul, which is... Uh, Kind of a dark take, stories uh, that take their inspiration from the mythos of Alice in Wonderland. Oh, I mean, there's lots you can do with that. (laughs) There's just so (laughs) much darkness in Carol's stories for children. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I've just been reading Phantoms um, and I've absolutely thoroughly enjoyed it. So there's probably going to be a lot of questions around this because there are some great stories in there and some great examples. (laughs) But with both of us being editors, then I can certainly say with confidence that I've read some brilliant, breathtaking story submissions in my time and also some that just don't quite work. So for you, what are the essential elements of a short story? Uh, I suppose if you take it down to its basics, I mean, a good old fashioned answer is it has to have a beginning, a middle and an end to really work. There are a lot of stories that start off and build up really well and then kind of lose their way and fizzle out. So you need, I mean, ambiguity is a, is a more recent thing. I think Paul Tremblay does that brilliantly, but mostly I think unless you're really, really good the just traditional structure of the beginning, middle and end. So you need a hero or heroine. You need to know who they are. You need to know what the conflict is and you need to know how it's resolved. I'd also say it really works well if you're starting out. Uh, and this obviously doesn't apply to, like you're saying, Paul Tremblay, <laughs> Joe Hill and no, he- John Connolly, all the mm-hmm. masters, you know. But I think it works really well if you can fixate on a single contained event Mm. um, and start as close as possible to the catalyst. I tend to find when I read short story submissions that aren't great, there's usually quite a lot of backstory before you actually get to the point where you really feel the short story starts. Yeah. Uh, And I think that's quite a skill to be able to pinpoint, right, my story should start here and then work in any backstory you need a little later. It reminds Um, me of a quote by, do you know uh, Steve Gallagher, Stephen Gallagher? Yes. Who, I mean, very, very good writer, both in fiction and for TV as well. But he always he used to think of the his first draft, the first chapter, as clearing of the throat. It kind yes. of <laughs> you you get it all out there, and you think, oh, it should have started here. So I think yes, you need to be sure that there's an opening that will hook the reader, and okay. from there, you know, be clear about what you're doing. As you say, a short story, there's only really room to explore one central concept. So make sure that your characters and your dialogue serve that. And, you know, it it kind of evolves out of it, but just make sure that you keep it clean, I suppose. I would say by clean, you mean sharp and not not rude. (laughs) Well, no, not rude. No, if it's rude, I don't care. But no, just don't (laughs) get bogged down by the, oh, what would happen if, and getting diverted into sort of sidetracks, because that will just dilute the story you keep to your central plot point your central theme of the story and just explore that simply and neatly. So while, you know, you're talking about how the the author needs to kind of rein in their imagination a little bit in terms of not going every which way they possibly could, Mm. um, but at the same time, it seems like short stories um, often leave more to the imagination for the readers because there is less that's really clearly defined. And I think for me, one of the I think sometimes this is a real strength of short stories. And the example I always think of, which isn't actually short story at all, um, but in Star Wars, when you had like the the creature on Hoth that attacks Luke, 
in the original one, you know, you just saw like this arm and it just, it felt a lot scarier to me than when he went and redid it, George Lucas redid it in the the sort of the 97 re-release or whatever it was. When you put in a whole big monster and you saw the whole thing lumbering around and all that kind of thing. And it just, it, it kind of lost the frightening aspect of it because when, you know, when you first see that, it's just an arm, it's just much, much scarier. And I mean, what is it about that? It's not necessarily exclusive to a short story that I think is always your mind will, you know, what's in your mind is scarier than what's on the page. So it's, I mean, you can explain very well and very clearly in a short story and still make it really scary. But I mean, think of it in film and TV. It, when you can't quite see what it is, it's scarier than when it's there in front of you, which is why some horror films or some horror stories work great in story form, not so much on the screen, because once it's in front of you, there's nothing to, to fear as such, because it's there, it's right there. Your mind is a scarier place, I think. I think in this situation with short stories and imagination, tropes can be really useful or really awful for you. So one of the main flaws I tend to find is that you read a story that has just been done before uh, and perhaps done better, or Mm. it's not enough of a twist to make it slightly different. I do remember I had, for one anthology, I had two wonderful stories that completely turned the trope on its head in exactly the same way. And I was, oh no, they're both so brilliant and I have to choose between them. Mm. So I think tropes can be great in a short story because it's a bit like um, a shortcut. You can just go straight to this familiar scenario and then you can keep going with it. And an inexperienced writer or even, you know, an experienced writer who's having a bad day will then follow the trope to its conclusion and you just end up with a pretty predictable story. But if you can really capture it and turn it on its head in a distinctive way that hasn't been done before, then I think tropes can help you out because it's a short shortcut for your reader to go, oh, I'm in this world and this is going to happen and prepare them. So you don't need to feed in all this backstory, but then you can throw a spanner in the works and, and really turn it on its head. Yeah, but I think, you know, I mean, all stories use tropes, the tropes of their genre to a degree, because, I mean, that's how you define what your story is. But it's, uh, I think, having the skill and the experience to be able to subvert that trope, as you say, use it in a way that is unique to you. I mean, ultimately, there is nothing new, but what is new is the spin you can put on it. Well, thinking about tropes and getting straight into a story, I wanted to ask you, Marie, about the increase in popularity of micro stories, in particular in horror. I mean, there are some really great ones out there on a horror theme. So, you know, is it possible to scare someone properly in less than 100 words, do you reckon? Absolutely. There's one that you see going around it on Twitter on a regular basis. I don't know who did it originally, but there was something like, was it five words? No, five sentences or five words, something like that anyway. But there was someone... The last man in the world sat alone in his house. Someone knocked at the door. I mean, that starts you off. Well, you, know, you have a character looking out of a window, waiting for someone she's all by herself, and a voice from behind her says, your hair smells wonderful. Again, that could be nice or it could be absolutely terrifying, depending on where your imagination goes, I suppose. It's, it's possible to do it. I'm not a huge fan of micro stories, purely because I read so quickly. It's like okay, that's done. <laughs> I like to, I like to have something a bit longer that I can I can uh, spend more time with. They are certainly a lunchtime read, aren't they? They're about a three second read. <laughs> it's, it's a lunchtime read. I mean, the first time I read The Stand, I mean, I'm slower now, but when I was younger, the first time I read The Stand, it took me three hours. So a micro story, like maybe about a minute. You know, it's just. <laughs> I I do read very quickly. Well, I must admit, I think a lot of the micro stories have chosen horror because it's a bit like um, a real life shortcut, really. We have all been there and all been scared. And I think the the brilliant thing about micro stories is they kind of conjure up fears that were already there of something under the bed or whatever. Uh, And that does seem to be quite a good theme among the (laughs) the horror stories. They're like a switch. They They are, yes. Yeah, flick that switch, that's all. It's, uh, I mean, you know, they are good. They are, there are some very good ones out there. It's just, you know, personal taste, really, for myself. If I'm going to choose to read, I want something a bit longer. 
I must admit, I find a lot of the micro stories also focus on parenting issues. Like they have the one where the father is tucking his son into bed and the little boy goes, Daddy, there's something under my bed. Um, and the father looks under and then the, there's his little boy under the bed going, Daddy, there's something in my bed and just stops. <laughs> and that's the end of the story. I mean, yeah. that, that's one of the other one that always gets me is where the little girl is lying in bed and hears her mother's voice downstairs, gets out of bed. And then her mother grabs her from the, the bathroom, hauls her in and goes, yes, I can hear it, too. Mm. And I always thought these are two things that really do get you, which because it's this idea of children and being afraid of the dark and monsters. But also when you get older, uh, and Marie, I know you have kids, that mm. horrible fear of something terrible happening to your child that you can't stop or that has already happened. It's just yeah. It is like you say, it's that switch. And I think that seems to be something that micro stories click on to an awful lot. This idea yeah. of A, the dark, B, being in bed and C, children. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Can I play a bit of devil's advocate here? Because is that really a story then? If you've not really got real character development or change or growth, it doesn't, to me, they feel like scenes. They're not stories. Exactly. They're more like vignettes, really. But I think where they're a story is because, as we said, they serve as a switch and your mind then starts to supply the rest. And it's that idea of imagination that the micro stories really do rely on the reader having a huge amount of imagination and getting there really quickly in just 100 words. Exactly. They're just It's literally just triggering that switch. So with short stories, obviously, we've discussed how, you know, the, the word count is limited and when it comes to genre fiction perhaps less so with horror because there's fewer horror stories at least that I'm familiar with that take place in a purely secondary world so you have the kind of grounding in our world of sorts just uh our world with a twist a dark twist um but but how do you get around the kind of the the need for a really immersive world building while keeping to the word count and not getting bogged down in that kind of world building? I mean, obviously it depends on the story. It's, it's There's no one set way to do it. But I think if your characters are well-drawn enough that you they resonate with you and if it's in a world that we all recognise, there's a kind of shorthand to that anyway. You know, everyone knows the corner store. Everyone knows the headmaster no one likes. Everyone knows the creepy lady who lives on the corner, you know, there's always, it's the best horror is rooted in the everyday. It's set in a world we all know. We don't need to have described in massive detail within a short story because it's what we what we see. And then it, as you say, it takes a left turn. I mean, some of my favorites, I don't know if either of you have read the end of the whole mess by Stephen King. No, not yet. <laughs> I'm working was, my way through King. <laughs> It's, uh, it's very simple. It shows a world we all know. It's today's world. And the narrator is, he's the brother of uh, a genius, basically, who it tells the story of them growing up. And this, this, this guy is looking for a cure for the ills of the world, the violence, the war, the, the hate. And uh, he discovers a cure. And being so eager and so desperate to do it he 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 goes ahead only to find out that it also causes dementia and then things it's, it's worldwide and things are rapidly falling apart it's our world it's a world we all know but there's a very neatly built-in comment about the fact that we'll be the cause of our own downfall or the reach again king i'm a huge king fan as you'll gather um it's an elderly lady taking a final trip from the island she lives across to the mainland while it's while the ocean is frozen accompanied by the ghosts of her past and again it's just an old woman reminiscing as she walks but you get a very vivid picture of what it was like to grow up live and eventually die on a small island off the coast of maine uh shirley jackson's the lottery barker's another one the midnight meat train it's our, it's an underground train completely normal and then he gets off and there's like the old ones underneath and it's, it's a whole different thing it's all sorts of possibilities I have to say, I have to give a shout out to the first story in your Phantoms anthology, which was When We Fall, We Forget by Angela Slater. That that was a really good one. And as an editor, I know how important it is to get the first story just right to hook the reader, because most people, Mm. even in anthology, sometimes you flick to your favourite author, but generally you start at the beginning. And I just, I just loved it because 
she built a backstory that was just so cleverly interwoven and she also got the fine details down like I could imagine the parlor where this all took place it was just it was just so wonderful and the whole hierarchy of heaven and hell was brought into it as well and she had really big ideas and it was contained down into this one simple story and she really had character development and got me to love and root for this person and just help me to understand which was black and white and good and evil in her world and I just thought that was a a really really good one it is it's an amazing story it's about love isn't it and about redemption ultimately but you did mention Stephen King and when we're talking about short (laughs) stories you got to mention King simply because if short stories are an ideal format for horror then how does Stephen King get away with making money from books that could act as doorstops? I mean, what is the difference between the short stories he writes and the the big books like The Shining or Pet Cemetery or something like that? I'm not sure I'd agree that the, the ideal format for horror is short stories. I think it works at any length, really. But it goes back to what we say, short stories, you have one idea to explore. You can't digress. And the difference, I think, is scale. You know, he's, he's, he doesn't just write horror. He's written science fiction, crime, just beautiful character studies. When you think about Dolores Claiborne, for example, it's not so much different techniques. It's scale. It's uh, he understands story. He writes about people you can empathize with in a world we know. And then he puts them in in danger and. You care about the people. You care about what happens to them. I think that's the ultimate thing with a Stephen King story. He just sort of sets this world up and takes you by the hand and leads you in. I mean, I have some read Stephen King and think that all of his little secondary characters have their own stories. Absolutely. And each story all by itself could almost be a complete short story. And it's like he links them all together and each little person has their own little story arc. Yeah. And I just think it, it's so, so wonderful. And yet, if you have a look at something like Needful Things, that's a perfect example of all these different people having their own different horror stories all tied up together. Mm. Um, and something like The Shining as well, where you have a series of, like you say, I suppose, vignettes, which each one is is scary by itself and a scary encounter. And yet he manages to do an overall story arc of poor old Jack Torrance and, and what happens to him. Yeah, I'm reading that now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say my favourite is Pet Cemetery, which is is very, very different because he takes the idea of examining relationships and the fallout when your worst fear is realised. So it's mm. not it's not the same as a short story. It's not the same kind of fear. It's not the same approach. It's not kind of building on... It is building on tropes, I suppose, to a certain point that nobody wants to have their child die by any stretch of the imagination. But there's so much build-up before that. And what I said previously about, oh, you shouldn't have too much backstory, pretty much the first half of that is almost backstory before the, the catalyst, which is, I suppose... The major catalyst is Gage's death, although I suppose you could say it's also Church's death, depending on how you look at it. But it's just it's so completely different to all of his other novels, which sort of seem almost, you could almost divide them up and you could read one section of The Shining and it would be a horror story all by itself. Whereas Pet Cemetery, I feel you can't take any of it out of context. It's got to be read as a whole terrifying descent into madness. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure the death of either Gage or Church is the catalyst. I think the kicking off point that you know things aren't quite right is when he finds the pet cemetery and you know there's something not, you know, something not being said there. And it's a little, and again, his first day at work when the guy gets brought in, there's something not right there. So, yeah, I, I think it's, that's way before, if I remember rightly, that's way before Gage. So it's, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, the things, what do we all fear? Something happening to someone we love. Fear of the unknown. I mean, there's a line at the beginning of that, he was feeling uprooted and transplanted because he'd moved across to, I've forgotten the name of the town, the town where this this, uh, takes place. He's had to move to get to this new job. So I think at the beginning of it, he says he was feeling uprooted and transplanted. And that sense of dislocation, I think, goes throughout the whole novel. So that's his skill, I think. He can absolutely make you empathise. He puts an ordinary guy in a situation that looks like it's going to be an everyday, and then he introduces the weird. And and it's all about, can he save, can they save who they love? Can they save themselves? 
I don't know. I think there's no one that writes it quite like him. I think that's probably why he's endured. I also seem to find that he writes every book seems to be a little bit different to the others. There is no such thing as a King novel because, like you say, he's written so widely. They're all yeah. very different. There's a King voice. I mean, you know, we've all got our own voices, haven't we? You can, there's a very recognisable Stephen King voice, but his imagination is amazing. The, the range of stories. I mean, you've got science fiction in the jaunt. You've got almost comedy horror in a... Do you ever read a short story called... Um, Oh, The Moving Finger. Oh, my God. I was going to mention that earlier and I couldn't remember the name of it. It's one of the first short stories I ever read as a teenager in horror. Tiny and, oh, story. It's so, oh, my goodness. It's wonderful and gruesome. And when she just sits on the toilet and he's waiting for it to come out. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Blew me away as a kid. <laughs> oh, great. It's something very simple. Very, yeah. very simple. And it is it's terrifying. But I think that's his skill. He just He's very good at just sort of twisting things just that little bit. And also. And making you care. <laughs> not just simple but in a weird way ridiculous because it's a finger in a drain what's it going to do and yet exactly. you are utterly terrified by it yeah <laughs> that's its strength i think that one there was some i mean there's a story it's a novella called ballad of the flexible bullet which is one of my favorites of his which is again it's very very silly in one sense it's a, a retired editor telling the story of a writer he used to work with who went crazy and basically this writer was convinced there was a gremlin called rackney that lived in his typewriter and he couldn't write if anything happened to rackney and i mean the story is actually it's, it's a, a writer's descent into madness as we say but it's it's the, the tropes that he, the, the things that he uses in the story it's, it's one of my favorites of his i have a question about the in terms of like comparing short stories to novels when it comes to horror because mm. f for me what I love about a horror short story is that it's just I guess it's that really short intense terrifying piece and sometimes I struggle with a horror novel when uh, I don't know if it's sort of like terror burnout or you know just being able to sustain that or um, to, to keep me interested uh, in in that for that length of time. And I was just wondering how, what maybe you think that, say, King or, or other writers who do really well with horror novels, how they manage to keep that terror level up or manage to make it so that readers don't sort of get burnt out by being constantly on the edge of their seats. I don't think it's necessary to have them constantly on the edge of their seats. I mean, if you think of a horror film, what do you do after a jump? You laugh because of relief. I think you have mm -hmm. to have like an ebb and flow. Sure. For me, some of the, I mean, horror in itself, I mean, there's so many, it's such a wide church. You can go from ghost stories to psychological horror like Silence of the Lambs. There is no one type of horror story, but I think especially with the quieter type, the supernatural type, I think a slow build helps. I mean, I've just read a, a brilliant one, uh, Mistletoe by Alison Littlewood. Oh, I'm very jealous. I can't wait to read that. <laughs> <laughs> I have to write the review tomorrow. It's, um, oh, nice. It's a ghost story. And it's the sense of place and the sympathy for the main character. And it starts off with just very small things that aren't quite right and then it builds and builds but there's not this it's not like a freight train taking you right the way through from oh this is good to absolute terror there's a there's a, a relief in between you know there'll be something scary will happen and then she'll try to figure out what it was and, and distract herself by going to see someone you know there's you can't have constant terror because people would either switch off if it's a film or put the book down you know you have to pace it you have to have pacing you have to have balance i just wanted to pick up on what marie was saying about um tension and needing to have ebbs and flows and i read the very excellent cabin at the end of the world by paul tremblay recently and it was a great novel and he has some fantastic characters in there and i really cared about them but i really struggled with the fact that it was just constant and there was no relaxation of the tension and the terror within it and I've, a bit like Megan, I found that a bit too much. I mean, we're talking about going back to King a little bit and how he does it differently. And he keeps my interest throughout a whole novel, a doorstop novel even, because he does do ebbs and flows so well. And 
I have to say that Paul Tremblay's A Head Full of Ghosts, just I could not put that down. What was Marie saying about the the book that you read in an afternoon? That was just fantastic. Mm. And I loved it. And I thought he did that really well. But I must admit, I found The Cabin at the End of the World just not to my taste, because for me, there wasn't enough ebb and flow in it. And I, I could not deal with that constant tension. And it may very well be that it is because I'm a parent and there was a child in danger and permanently in danger. And I just could not cope with that. For me, that was not something that, that I really enjoyed. I actually I love that book <laughs> it's, it's a good I book found, it's just not quite me yeah that's fair enough I found I did find it ebbed and flowed you'd have these set pieces that we think oh my god but then there'd be I mean all right it wasn't much of a lot but there'd be a lull in between as they try and take stock and figure out what's going on so it's, it's not constant difficult to say without trying to ruin it for people it's it's, it's, there's not constantly bad things happening every second of every day it's told over quite a short period of time and there are periods where the 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 family if you like they're kind of left to their own devices for a little period of time and they're trying to figure out what to do how this has happened for me that i suppose that was the lull for me that was just a little bit of relief before the next thing that you really didn't want to happen, did kind of thing, you know. And it goes back to ambiguity. There is that ambiguity, but with this particular one, it, that doesn't matter. What you think is up to you, it doesn't affect how good the novel is. Do you see what I mean? It's um, Some books I'll read and there's an ambiguity and I'll think, well, I really wanted them to come down one side or the other. With this one, I really, what you what you think is what you think and it doesn't affect the narrative one iota. It's, it's a, it's a, I think it's his best book so far. I'm a huge Paul Tremblay fan. So uh, talking about Paul Tremblay puts me in mind of A Head Full of Ghosts, which had some amazing female protagonists in it. Um, Mm. And it made me think back to previously in the horror industry, where women were quite often the agentless victims of horror stories from books and movies in the 1980s. But that's not so true these days. So as an editor, do you still see a lot of horror stories where women are treated as disposable simply because there's not enough time to develop a character properly in a short story? Or are you finding a lot of really good stuff out there? I don't actually think it's been like that for quite a long time. There are always films like that. But, I mean, going back to films, what about The Final Girl? I mean, yes, women are are treated terribly, but not exclusively in those films. And usually it's a woman that survives at the end. I spit on your grave. You've got a woman who's horribly violated at the beginning, but then she then goes and horribly kills all of her attackers. So I don't necessarily agree that they're agentless, shall we say. I mean, yes, there is too much. It's, it's an easy thing to rely on a woman being abused in some way as a jumping off point. I think it's happening less, but I don't think, certainly in most of the films I'm thinking of, although there was an awful lot of, oh, quick, she's had a shower or her top is off, it must be her turn to die next. There were also men being killed, which people probably because of that didn't notice quite so much, I don't know. But always, well, nearly always, it's a woman that survives. I think a film that for me kind of said all that needed to be said on that was Joss Whedon's Cabin in the Woods, who basically used every trope imaginable. Basically saying, all right, this is what's been done so far, go do something different. So hopefully now, with horror films especially, we'll start to see something different. The woman, the agentless woman victim, I find is more a trope of crime. You know, the woman found at the beginning of the novel that kicks the novel off. It's, it's uh, yeah. I think horror, the women usually have some agency, at least. They certainly do these days. I mean, I've just uh, watched An American Werewolf in London, Mm. and I could not get over the treatment of Jenny Agatha's character. And I was actually texting one of my colleagues, uh, sorry, one of my Ginger Nuts horror colleagues, and saying, oh, my God, I can't believe that she's a nurse. And she's just asked the porter what his medical diagnosis of the patient at the end, the embed is. I'm like... (laughs) Granted, there were films that did it, definitely. But you look at Sigourney Weaver and Alien, that was 79. Uh, Halloween was in the 70s. Buffy in the 90s. Um, in the first Friday the 13th, the killer was uh, the mother. It's 
Voorhees. That's it, Mrs. Voorhees. Don't give spoilers. Do, <laughs> old people know, but I did a very good interview, very interesting interview with uh, Betsy Palmer once where she talked all about that. And she was saying, you know, she, she gave her character, she invented a backstory for her character. She knew why she was doing it, why she was protecting her boy. It's, it's um, I think, although you're the, I think what people notice are those ones, but they're not the majority. I think there are always examples to be found on either side. And certainly these days, it's much less common. There was a film I watched recently with Paul, and it was... Uh, there were two women. Basically, very, very bad things happened there, but the men are completely made to suffer for it. It's that thing. It starts off with the women being the victims, and they've been brought up there. They, they were the special ones in this school, and they got horribly abused by the male uh, staff and the head of the school. That's it, the perfection. It, it turns it completely on its head by the end. I think that's happening more these days. It certainly is. But I think when you were talking about The Cabin in the Woods, one of my all-time favourite films, it's the only mm. horror film that I've said to my husband, you have to sit and watch this. And at the end of it, he went, that's not a horror film, that's a comedy. <laughs> so it does have that element to it. But well, Whedon always has humour, doesn't he? So, oh, absolutely. But, I mean, I think that works because the first death is the death of excuse the language, the slut, um, or however Sigourney Weaver describes it at the end. And I think that does highlight the fact that, yes, in a lot of films, it's always the women that tend to go first. And yeah, a load of men get got, but you've then got thinking about Dead Snow, which again was another parody and a very brilliant and very funny film. And the first person to die is a woman because she's had sex. So there's a lot of things where there were a lot of judgments against women and there was a lot of sexism in the, the previous horror stories and movies. And maybe it's just the ones that I've grown up on and the ones that I remember from my youth growing up and everybody watches different things. But I certainly feel like in the past, women were just killed willy nilly and because they'd had sex or because they'd been a little bit, you know, too slutty. Well, I mean, Whereas, going back to Scream, isn't it? They actually state that trope it's, it's uh stated as one of the rules but it's, it's that thing of tra- if you transgress you pay and yes the, the slut is the obvious trope that they used there that's true but i think that's not necessarily just true of horror i think there's an awful lot of fiction and films where that was the case i mean with film especially noir is the obvious one there that would use the same thing I don't necessarily, I don't know why, to be honest. I mean, whether it's a denigratory thing to women or whether it's just it's an easy thing to hang a story on, I don't know. It's all down to perception, I suppose, really. Reading a lot of fairy tales, and it's interesting you mentioned about transgressions, there's a lot of stuff in fairy tales about people transgressing and then not being able to get to the end of the story or have a happy ending because they've made them this mistake. But mm. in the old folk tales, it's kind of equally split between men and women, whereas growing up, certainly, and again, my own personal experience, I found it was usually the women that had the the tough end of it. And they were usually the first ones to go because they'd gone out with someone or they were too cute. Whereas with um, talking about Scream, which you mentioned, love that film, where they say, oh, don't go down alone into the cellar and things like that. That's what the men kind of got. They got the stupid things of going alone into the night, whereas the women just got got in general. But again, that's my very personal experience of Mm. horror stories and movies I remember growing up. And I certainly don't see that now. And if I do see it, it is in things like Cabin in the Woods or Scream, where it's completely taken apart and just ridiculed and said, this is ridiculous. Mm. I do. I see your point, but I think there was always... Although, yes, I mean, yes, absolutely, you are right in that respect. But at the end, it was usually a woman that survived. You know, I don't think it it wasn't just like every female in the place has to die just to keep the men. It's supreme, if you like. I think there's that element to it, but it wasn't all of it. That's true. It's but again, thinking about Cabin in the Woods, it's interesting that the one who ends it and who survives at the end is the you can't see my air quotes on podcasts but the virgin mm. and i did i did like the twist in cabin in the woods where she went but i'm not a virgin and sigourney weaver goes yeah well we won't we'll we'll we yeah <laughs> <laughs> i know but, yeah it's the good girl trope isn't it the good person the person who obeys the rules and who doesn't transgress which i think these days can be 
either gender, but probably more so in the past, purely because society was more male orientated in the past, I think. It would but have been it, the woman who got it first. Isn't it interesting, though, that it is the woman who gets it first and who transgresses the worst, and then it's also the woman at the end who is the the one that is held up above everybody else and who is wonderful and will survive. <laughs> You've almost got these two contrasting characters and then the men just get in the middle, chewed up and spat out. It's it's almost... It's the eternal dichotomy, isn't it, it is. really? <laughs> it's both uplifting and denigrating and just completely ridiculous all at the same time. Yeah, some very confused people out there. <laughs> so we're obviously talking about women as characters within horror, but what about women who write horror? Do you think they write a different type of horror to men? I think it's it's a it's a generalization really. I think there's a perception that women write nicer horror, you know, more sensitive, more emotionally resident, but I think men are equally capable. And I think there are women who write horrific stuff like Moheda, and there are men who write quite sensitive fiction. I mean Paul Tremblay is one that writes fully realised female characters. There are plenty more. I mean, Josh Malaman, uh, King, obviously. Um, more so these days, I think, in his younger days. He always wrote well-rounded female characters, but you write it through the lens of the time you're writing in, don't you? And it's just a different time now. So thinking about some of the classics... I'm a huge fan of M.R. James, and he had a history of writing a ghost story each year for Christmas. And this is something that the BBC and Mark Gatiss have promoted in the past few years. So do you think that horror works best in the autumn and winter when we're all gathered around and there's a roaring fire and there's shadows outside and things like that? Or do you think that horror can work as equally well in the blazing sunshine? Have you got any good examples that you'd like to share with us? I think, uh, I mean, taking the ghost stories for Christmas thing, that was originally the BBC anyway, did them in the 70s, didn't they? With uh, I think it was Christopher Lee reading them on for the radio and they did the TV ones, which Mark Gatiss has resurrected really with new ones that he's been writing over the last few years. I think M.R. James wrote those stories to read aloud and I think that in particular works very well when you've got a group of people around a fire and it's the old campfire thing, isn't it? You know, gather around and there are things out there in the dark. Uh, in written form, I don't think it matters at all. Um, are there scary stories that are set in the sunshine? Absolutely. Um, I've read, a st- I can't remember titles now, because I'm going back to things I've read in, I don't know if anyone, Stephen Jones's best new horror series over the, it was coming up to volume 30. I've read some great ones in there. Graham Joyce and Ramsey Campbell have both written stories inspired by time they spent in the Greek islands. Uh, Stephen King wrote a story called Beach World. Astronauts land on a planet that's essentially a desert and things start to go badly and very subtly wrong. Uh, Christopher Fowler wrote a novel called Nyctophobia. It's a haunted house story, but it's set in sunny Spain. I don't think... It's an emotion, basically. Horror is an emotion, so the setting for it doesn't necessarily have to be wintry it can be anywhere what you have to do is make the hair on the back of the neck prickle it's 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 all about setting up that feeling i'd like to just point out that of course christmas in australia isn't cold exactly (laughs) you can have horror you know christmas themed horror stories set in australia where it's sunny and everyone's barbecuing and at the beach it's perfectly reasonable Now, you see, I really love Christmas stories, and I have to say that they are the best time to read horror stories. And obviously, we're talking to Marie, who is married to the very fantastic Paul Kane, and he did a collection of short stories set around Christmas for Black Shirt Books, and they were just great. They had all the wonderful joy and sparkle of Christmas and all the happiness, and then they contrast that with deep, dark, desperate times and for me personally, I think that is just the best thing ever. And this could be because the first ever horror book I got was one published by the same people who did Point Horror, which was focusing around Christmas. And I must admit, I really struggle with horror in the sunshine. And the two that I thought of that were worked really well 
was The Hidden People by Alison Littlewood. Obviously, we mentioned Mistletoe earlier, and I'm so looking mm-hmm. forward to reading that. But I thought The Hidden People worked really well. Despite it being really sunny, she still managed to create a sense of unease, mm-hmm. which I don't necessarily get when I'm out on a summer's day, because I like to relax, I like to sunbathe, and I don't necessarily associate that with ghosts and evil doings. Um, the other one that I thought was quite good was, went back to Stephen King, it was Cujo, where he kind of worked the hot weather into the horror and the pressurised situation where they had to get out of the car because they were just dehydrating. Yeah. And I thought that was a really good plot point that you wouldn't have got if you'd have said it at Christmas. Yeah, no, I'd agree. There's, uh, there's a lot of horror fiction that's set at other times. I mean, winter ones. Have you read Dark Matter by Michelle Paver? No, but it's on my to-read list. That's that's possibly my favourite of hers. She has another one, Thin Air, which is uh, mountain climbing in the Himalayas in the winter. Both ghost stories, both very good. I suppose it depends on whether you class it as historical or horror, whatever. But I really liked The Terror by Dan Simmons. And I know it's not set at Christmas, but it is set in the snow. Yeah, And I, I love to read it every year when the snow is falling because it just gives that extra little bit of a veracity to it. And you kind of look out the window and go, yeah, is there something stalking me? Yeah, I like that with Dark Matter. That's every winter I read that. So with the BBC doing the, the Christmas stories, and it it's obvious like TV is a real home for horror. And there are a lot of horror shows coming up at like now and even you know from I grew up on watching the X-Files and I you know that creepy one where the guy like creeps around and he squeaks Mm. his little thing and then he like comes out of people I don't know what episode that was but I still have nightmares about that um (laughs) that's bye bye um (laughs) but there are a lot of these shows where um I think and I it probably happened before Joss Whedon but he certainly um with Buffy um, in particular, it was more than just like monster of the week and it becomes monster of the week plus overarching story for a whole season. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like that's, that's a really interesting way of looking at it as kind of short stories within a larger narrative overall. And I mean, do you think that that is kind of a way that short stories can really be replicated in, in TV? Um, I wouldn't call those – no, I, w- I would probably liken them to novels, to be honest. I mean, I loved Flanagan's adaptation of The Haunting of Hill House, for example, I mean, based on Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House, but I also enjoyed the 1963 movie of it. 99, not so much, but, you know, it's uh, – <laughs> Yes, well, that one bears little resemblance to the book. So. <laughs> exactly. But it's, no, um, I like that one. No. I really it. And it did have elements that you don't get in the other ones. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Just, no. It's not the best, but it's still not bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I don't know. I mean, I think a TV series such as that or The X-Files or which was the other one we mentioned? Uh, Buffy, Supernatural. Supernatural is another one. It's, um, no, I think I'd, I'd say more like a novel because your overarching story, your story arc, I think I would call like the backbone of the novel your central theme, your your plot, your central driving force of the plot. But the monster of the week episodes, for want of a better word, they're not kind of self, they're, they're, like the A story it's a self-contained story, but it serves to illustrate the B and the C, which are linked into the spine. They're like different strands in a novel, if you like, character, you know, fleshing out the characters, fleshing out the situation in the world that they're in. Uh, short stories, I would call like an anthology series, like Black Mirror or Creep Show or what's in the... Masters of Horror, Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, all of those. Mm-hmm. Fear itself. I mean, <laughs> talking about Paul, one of his short stories was actually adapted into an episode of Fear Itself. New Year's Day is based on one of Paul's. That's but cool. They're, they're, I mean, they're actually self-contained narratives, a short story, a different story, different characters every single week. So that's more like an anthology, whereas uh, something like The Haunting of Hill House, you've got that overarching plot and all the other stories serve to fill in. I mean, often you can only see at the end. I mean, if you look, if you The Haunting of Hill House, the final episode, the reveals of all the little things that were set up 
in all the previous episodes. You can absolutely see that the threads run through each. Which, uh, I mean, it's a different thing, isn't it? It's, um, I like both. I like anthology shows and I like shows that progress and have that arc. Yeah, I mean, for me, I also really like the the kind of the TV series where you can really build up the connection with the characters. So I, for, personally, I find horror television series more frightening or they, they speak to me more than horror films generally do because I feel like when those kinds of the build up that that final really big bad kind of thing happens I'm really invested in those characters and oh no I don't want anything to happen to them so <laughs> it really works for me um that that kind of approach to telling horror on screen yeah I think with, I mean with movies again I think it depends on the type of horror movie I mean there are some quite well, quiet might not be the right word, but have you seen Hereditary? No. That kind of, it, it starts off, things are slightly off kilter and it just progresses and progresses, but you do get deeply invested in in the family that are being portrayed. And it's uh, it's got a couple of jump moments, I'd say, but it's not really a, that kind of film predominantly. It's more of a character thing. Okay, I will check it out. <laughs> it's very creepy. I mean, I really like the idea of Supernatural and the Haunting of Hell House and the X-Files. And just like Marie says, you kind of have the monster of the week. And that always really appealed to me. I liked the focus on a particular creature or a particular story that was in itself self-contained. And when I look back on the X-Files and when I rewatch Supernatural, I think my favourite episodes really are the ones where it is just a story that is 45 minutes long. And, okay, you get to look at Sam and Dean or... You know, David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson, both of whom were very lovely in the 90s. And there is that. But I wasn't so keen on the overarching stories. I really liked the individual self-contained ones. And it was good to have a little bit of overarching. But I think it was good to see the immediate reactions of characters that you knew and love and follow them on that one story. That definitely was an appeal for me. Mm, I mean, there is that element to it. But I just like the fact that underlying it, the characters are progressing to something bigger, you know. I mean, even, oh, I'm trying to think. Even in the the most self-contained episode, there would be something that the character would learn, you know, that one of the main characters would learn or reveal or find out about someone else that would carry forward into, or about themselves, that would carry forward into further episodes, if you like, whilst solving that once, that self-contained story of the week i have the desire to contradict you but i can't do it without re-watching the x-files and supernatural and that is a challenge i'm willing to take up <laughs> i think our favorite one lately is the uh scooby natural oh my goodness that? where they get no i haven't but i've heard about it is that the one where they get drawn in scooby-doo yeah oh hysterical. i'd love to see that <laughs> it is very funny so yeah. many tropes and so many childhood um, exactly. memories. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Dean trying to pull Daphne is very funny. Oh, does he? That doesn't surprise me. Oh, I definitely need to see that. <laughs> so obviously we've talked an awful lot about horror writers and authors. And one thing I'd like to talk about, which is that a slight tangent to all that, is that you and your husband, Paul Kane, are very much involved in the Horror Writers Association. So can you tell us something about the HWA and what they're doing to improve the visibility of female and minority writers within the horror industry? Sure. Uh, I mean, Paul and I were asked a few years ago now to run the UK chapter, which we're trying to build to, I suppose, build up the, the horror community side in the UK. The Horror Writers Association was started in the 70s, I mean, by horror writers, for horror writers. I think Dean Coates and Joe Lansdale were two of the earlier were involved in, in, in the setting up of it. Um, what are they doing to improve? I mean, if you go to the, the, the main website, which is horror.org, at the top of the blog area, the first post in it is the Sears table. And that's a monthly column from the members newsletter 
that is also made available to the public. So anyone can go and see that, not just members. And that's to promote female authors, authors of colour, LGBTQ authors and disabled authors. Uh, if, if you go into the search bar and type in the Sears table, you can read monthly columns going back three years. And that's anyone can do that. And it's all to promote specifically authors who might not necessarily feel they're as well promoted. Um, they also run a scholarship. They run several scholarships, but the Mary Shelley scholarship is specifically a yearly one to promote female writers. A female writer every year will win that and it's to help them develop their career. Uh, and also, I mean, we're doing StokerCon in the UK for the first time in April. It's the fifth one. Over the last five years, basically, if you look back at the guests of honour and the programming, it's a very diverse mix of, of uh, male, female, uh, different ethnicities. It's across the board. I mean, you can see it even next year. I mean, if there's, they have their own site, the com, And if you go to that, you'll find everything about the history of the awards. And they have galleries from years past, which will show you the mix of programming and the mix of guests and attendees at each convention. I mean, next year we have Mick Garris, Kim Newman, Grady Hendricks. We also have the Deputy Publishing Director of Galanx, Gillian Redfern, and our Mistress of Ceremonies is A.K. Benedict. Uh, special guest Robert Lloyd Parry, who we're doing performed readings of M.R. James. Um, and if you look at them, well, you'll see at the time, but the, the members are on site now, the attending members. And when you see the programming, there will be a significant amount of writers across the board involved. I have to say I have only ever had a positive experience with the HWA and as a female horror writer in Britain I think it is a, a great community and I even got advice of Stephen Jones. I mean I went up to him in a convention and he offered me advice and he offered to look through a manuscript for me and all because he was part of the HWA and he wanted to support female authors and authors in general yeah and it's just a great a great thing and i have to say a huge thank you on behalf of horror authors in the uk that you've actually got StokerCon to um to the uk and to scarborough in particular which is just down the road for me yeah, i'm delighted we, we've managed to do it but it's uh hopefully everyone will have a good time we still you know we've started to announce little bits and pieces there will be more as we go forward but tomorrow we are six months out i can't quite believe it's nearly here. Know, <laughs> I'm planning so excited. And you have a huge guest list as well. All the people coming up from London, like you said, um, Gillian is coming up and mm -hmm. Sarah Pinborough. I think I saw Adam Neville on the list as well. Yeah. There's a, a huge amount of people who are all coming for this, all gathering in Scarborough. Mm. And I have to say, stylistically, it would have been awesome to be in Whitby, but we can all just take a bus down to Whitby. It'd be fine and go and have our well, own we, One of the things we're looking we're into happy. is whether we can organise coach trips during the convention, you know, at the beginning and at the end, to go to Whitby for the day. There's things we're looking at. <laughs> Hopefully people will have a great time. We've got a significant amount of authors coming from the US and Canada, authors from Ireland, uh, the Netherlands. It should be quite the mix, I think. So in this episode, we've examined short stories in detail with an editor who really knows her stuff. We've also compared them to longer novels and debated the various values of the two formats. I think we're agreed that Stephen King is a master of both the novel format and the short story format, and that horror in particular is good for short stories because it evokes primal responses from its readers. Hopefully our listeners have plenty of stories and authors to add to their reading list, and we'd like to offer a huge thanks to Maria Reason for joining us. Thank you for joining us, Marie. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.